Welcome to Darkly Lit, where we meander through a dazzling fair, enchanted by the sights and inventions. But we also search for a dangerous man, who goes by many monikers, and has built his own castle, used for nefarious purposes. I'm your host, Kayla King, and uh, happy Halloween, everyone! I'm joined by my other two amazing co-hosts, we have Sade. Hey, have you guys seen this shredded weed stuff? No way this shit's gonna last. <laughs> and our other co-host, David King. Yeah, shredded wheat, more like shredded doormat. <laughs> I think we had the same idea. <laughs> <laughs> My bad. Normally no, it's I just great. say I'm hi, but I was like, it. I should talk shit on shredded wheat because I don't like it. We should talk shit on shredded wheat. <laughs> I'm not a big fan of shredded wheat, so, but I, I, it is popular, so. If you guys heard the first part and you're like, you know what, I know what they're going to be reading, and then heard about the shredded wheat and were like, what the fuck are they talking about? Well, so we just read Devil in the White City by Eric Larson, which, David, want to give the description? So Devil in the White City is a nonfiction book, the first one we've ever covered on Darkly Lit, and to go over, uh, summarize the plot in huge detail feels kind of weird for nonfiction because there's a very uh, huge amount of fact-based stuff worked into this narrative. But I'll just say the book chiefly concerns uh, two narratives. One is about mainly Daniel Burnham and the people he puts together and the hopes and dreams of Chicago as the uh, Columbian Exposition, aka the Chicago World's Fair, is constructed and the trials and tribulations of setting up the fair, running the fair, and eventually closing the fair. uh, In tandem... With that, we also have the story of H.H. Holmes, widely considered one of America's first serial killers, and following his story from his uh, you know, beginnings to the where he crosses paths with Chicago, mainly being when he moves into Englewood and builds his murder castle and all the nefarious things he does. These two plots you know, start in different po- points, intermingle, and then kind of go on their separate ways, but we still follow them both. Uh, to the inevitable conclusions. Uh, In Holmes' case, how him trying to murder one of his old partners uh, ends up kind of leading to his own downfall. Yeah. Oh, and also it's bookended by the sinking of the Titanic. (laughs) Yep. 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 To start off, what did you guys think of this book? I don't ever read any, like, historical stuff. Like, I love history, but I've always just preferred fiction when it comes to reading, so it was definitely different for me. I enjoyed listening to it because I like history podcasts. I'll do a lot of those, but I have to be in a very specific mood for those kind of podcasts. So I had a hard time sitting myself down to like listen to it or like, because it's like I have to be like deep into like a project where I'm working with my hands and that's when like I'm in a history podcast mode. And this like listening to it felt like a history podcast. And so, yeah, no, I just had a hard time getting to it, but I did like it. I could see myself listening to more stuff like this. 
I was kind of the one who pushed for this book because I'd already read it once a while ago, and reading it again definitely helped reinforce it as one of the better nonfiction books I've read. And I think it's a real testament to Eric Larson's writing that I stayed as invested in this as I did. He has a way of making the facts come out in a much more uh, digestible way where you can follow this narrative and have these maybe more sensationalized accounts of certain characters, but it never feels sensationalized. It feels kind of grounded, uh, for me at least. That was my takeaway from it. And I really enjoyed uh, this particular book on both occasions of reading it. So it was great to revisit it again, and maybe a few years later at this point, where I have a slightly different perspective and slightly different understanding of the material when I read it years ago. And I think it still holds up pretty well. I'm quite fond of this one. Yeah, uh, like you, I actually did read the novel uh, earlier, about a few years ago, but it it had been so long that there's a lot of details I forgot. Um, David remembered a lot more than I did when we started discussing it. He's like, yeah, do you remember this, this? I'm like, what? That happened? (laughs) (laughs) So I'm glad I reread it. Um, I, okay, I try to read nonfiction novels to help, like, challenge me, but it's not my favorite. I do prefer fiction during challenges where they, uh, book challenges that I take on and they ask for, oh, read a nonfiction novel. I'm, I always dread that. And I'm just like, but this is a very accessible book to read. First of all, it is very factual, but it is told in a way that is enjoyable. And the characters actually feel real. They're not like, I don't feel distance from them. Like sometimes when you talk when you hear about history, you know what I mean? Yeah, it's not just, like, facts being thrown at you or, like, a summary of events. It There is, like, narrative to the presentation of all this information. So that definitely is what makes it very digestible. Oh, yeah. It's weird when you realize that you're reading about real people, which is, I think, one of the more unusual parts because you get sort of these accounts of them and hypotheticals about maybe what they were thinking. I think in particular of the part where it's supposed to be showing Anna Williams' last moments before, uh, like, as Holmes has her locked in his vault. Yeah. In that particular part, you uh-huh. know he doesn't really know what she's thinking, but it's it's a good bit of dramatic stuff that goes in there. Yeah, I, th- I think that's one of the more horrifying moments that happens in this. Yes, I know we're a horror podcast, but the, I will say the H.H. Holmes part of it, I want to say is more like a third of this novel where most of it focuses on the Chicago World's Fair. Yeah. It felt like it was pretty evenly split for the first part of it, but then as you get like later in the book, it it would go like it would switch between perspectives between chapters, but then like for a good chunk of the middle, it or for of the latter part of the book, it's just consistently like fair-based, 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 and then it goes back to Holmes for a bit and then more about the fair. So yeah, it does it, you're, I think you're right. Once you hit a certain stride in the book, it stops being as evenly skewed between the two perspectives. And then the last 50 pages is only dedicated to Holmes because it's like the World's Fair ends, but then it's like, that's the point when Holmes is like, well, peace, I'm getting out of here and I'm going to kill my partner. And I didn't kill him well enough, though, because now the authorities are going to find me. And then the focus goes on to Detective Geyer, who's like, I'm going to find this. He's he's the guy who basically gets Holmes He's one of those Pinkerton detectives that's like, mm-hmm. you know, they, they kind of try to immortalize, you know. Great descriptions, like a walrus mustache. I'm like, okay, I can see this guy. Yeah. And that's how I feel with a lot of these characters. I'm like, yeah, I could see these people. I mean, before I read this novel, I didn't know 
almost anything about the Chicago World's Fair. Mm -hmm. So there are a lot of moments where you're like, wait, they invented that? That happened? Mm -hmm. Wait, that's where it came from? Mm -hmm. Shredded wheat, baby. Well, not just shredded wheat. I mean, the Ferris wheel is the most famous one, I would say. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, And electricity. (laughs) Well, the the, the consistent, I mean, it's not like we didn't have electricity before, but the fact that this was the first opportunity for like the common person to see electric lights used in such a large capacity. I mean, the whole thing was lit with electric lights. And the fact that the the way they chose the current, the the current they could be offered, uh, they chose the one that was cheaper. It kind of, according to the book, and this is true, it did alter like the course of what kind of power we ended up using for the rest of American history, pretty Mm -hmm. much. And that's fascinating to me, just how much this fair like actually changed like society in so many ways, or at least that's the implication. There's there's a chapter I really like in there where they actually talk about all the people who were there and all the people who kind of met each other. Uh, the part that sticks out to me is the guy who invented the Braille typewriter, meeting uh, Helen Keller. Oh yeah, that was sweet. Yeah, mm-hmm. I also really love the moment immediately after that where um, uh, Susan B. Anthony meets uh, Buffalo Bill. Oh yeah, that was funny. Like the two of them have this like respect for each other because like she said, there's a whole thing in there about. Oh, don't go to the fair on Sundays. That's there's a whole movement in that. And then Susan B. Anthony's like, I'll do what I want. And this guy who's this clergy who's harassing her is like, Well, would you go to see Buffalo Bill on Sunday? Because he had the concession right next door, and she's like, Yes. In fact, I'd probably learn more there. And then Buffalo Bill hears about it. He's like, Come to my show. I'm gonna give you the best box in the house. <laughs> and he straight up rides right up to her and like bows to her and she like does the same to him and it's like i love that moment so much there are definitely like a lot of like really interesting details when it came to like just just describing those like new innovations and how people might have experienced it um just of like like the part that stuck out to me was like hey look at that thing let's all climb on it when they first started testing what's <laughs> turning, I was like, oh my god, no. No, 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 no. And then just the way people reacted to writing it, like the one guy who like tried to get out and the woman throwing her skirt over to calm yeah. him. That was a great... There was one that stuck out to me where like a woman had described how uh, just the experience of like everything suddenly becoming illuminated when the sun went down and just like how novel of an experience that was back then. Yeah. And I thought it was interesting of just like, there was a phrasing in there somewhere of like how like fascinating it was to just see so many lights in one place. And I was thinking about like how that's something that still like is captivating to us. Cause if you think of like, like our zoo here in Oregon, um, the Oregon Zoo will do this like Christmas lights thing where they put a whole bunch of lights in the zoo. I've, I've never actually been to see it, but like, you know, people will go to see just a whole bunch of Christmas lights. Things like that that I was like, okay, that would be really cool to experience and like, like just the novelty of it. And then also like how it's still kind of like, we, we haven't changed that much. <laughs> no. No. <laughs> You, you know, I, I think I may have mentioned this before to you guys, but I would have, I would love to be a time-traveling tourist. Oh, man, that would be so cool. <laughs> and, and go to, like, different events. And I know that the World's Fair would be absolutely one of those events I would love to have be able to, like, time-travel to and then, like, spend a day there. I know that I have to think of it from an 1893 perspective because I know we've seen inventions beyond belief now in 2022 i forgot what year it was for a second (laughs) oh my gosh next year's hold on 
Well, if t- next year is 2023, we are going to be... That's the... Because it... The, 200 and... Hold on. 1893 minus... No, wait. Not 200. What am I saying? 130 years since the World's Fair next wow. year. Oh, God. Wow. And, and shredded wheat is still going. Yep. Shredded wheat's still going. As long as it's frosted. Cracker Jacks aren't as popular. I know about them. I love Cracker Jack. I don't see them like being sold. I mean, yeah, it's are, definitely I... not as popular. That's like an obscure, like maybe you'll find it in a grocery store. Mm-hmm. Like I know for a fact the first time I've heard of Cracker Jacks was the baseball song. Oh, yeah. Also, I <laughs> to realize that that uh, the do 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 yeah yeah just like, a lot of like really great interesting details that just kind of like added to just like the the expansive detail like it wasn't just like oh here's some some cool facts about the world's fair but like all these other little interconnected things that just made it feel like okay yeah this was. A real thing. What I think is also so fascinating is that, um, and Larson himself notes this at the very end of the book, how looking at this whole project being a matter of civic pride, mm. like that's the whole reason they, they wanted to put on this show and put it together because pride was at stake, is like, according to Larson, it was something that's like, something that's like feels unheard of these days when it comes to like business ventures or ventures like this. Like it's not, you don't get that as strong as it used to. And I can kind of understand that sentiment because the whole reason they put this in there is like, we have to show the world that we're awesome. Mm. Like America's got to compensate for something because <laughs> they're, they're having a dick measuring contest literally with the Eiffel Tower. <laughs> it really yeah. is. And, um, and our man, George Ferris, comes in here with his wheel and it's way cooler. So I mean... I mean, the Eiffel Tower is still standing today and that original Ferris wheel is long gone. But, oh, yeah. I mean, the fact that... It's as prolific as it is. The freaking Ferris wheel. Like, it's hard to th- think of... I mean, for us, it's definitely hard to think of a time when we the Ferris wheel didn't exist as a, a carnival concession mm-hmm. or even as an amusement... Any kind of amusement park ride like that. The, the thing is, though, the Eiffel Tower is something that I see as more a monument. Yes. Where a fer- the Ferris wheel is more like an invention. It's an attraction. Yeah. Like, so is the Eiffel Tower, but, like, it, it's, you know, it's a monument, you know? Yes. Whereas an Eiffel or an Eiffel, a Ferris wheel, maybe just because we're used to seeing it in a carnival that like come and go, you know, it's a, it's a fleeting attraction. Mm-hmm. When you think of Paris, or when most people think of Paris, they think of the Eiffel Tower. Like that, that goes hand in hand. Well, it's like how when people think of New York, they think of the Empire State Building. Exactly. Well, I also think of. The Statue of Liberty. Oh, that too. That, that's actually my first thought is actually the Statue of Liberty. I'm thinking like tall buildings, but yeah. But yeah, where a Ferris wheel, yeah, it's a fleeting attraction. It's not really, you don't associate it with like America. No, I mean, that's, that Chicago. is true. But it, it says something about the staying power of it, that it is everywhere. I mean, you don't, but you don't, it's not as strongly associated with Chicago or one location as like the Eiffel Tower is with Paris. So I get that. They, they. For, but for the time at the fair, they were like, we, we fucking we fucking did it. We out Eiffel Eiffel, we did it. Take that, France. The petty drama. <laughs> I, I've never seen so many architects just get so bitchy towards each other. Actually, I have a question for all, all of uh, everybody present, and that's, uh, who's your favorite, uh, who's your pre- favorite uppity World's Fair architect person in this whole committee? And for me, it's Olmstead. I was going to say Yeah, Olmstead, I was going to so. say that too. <laughs> yeah. 
I think we're all in accord about Olmstead. He's so <laughs> obsessed with like the landscape needs to be like this. Landscape is art. Why doesn't anybody recognize me? Why don't? Why can't I get rid of my tinnitus? My teeth hurt. Poor guy. <laughs> I'm a victim of the Victorian diet, like everybody else. And, you know, no matter how much that guy's health failed, he kept bouncing back, which is crazy. <laughs> yeah, there's moments where I'm like, oh, no, this guy's going to die. And the, then... fact, the fact, okay, I know this is history, but the fact that John Root died before Hol- Olmstead is still kind of amazing to me. <laughs> I didn't find Daniel Burnham as interesting. Out of all the characters, like, I know he's the one we kind of follow. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, he played his role, and, you know, he had to be that, like pillar for for the world's fair yeah no i don't know i mean everyone were real people yeah so that's, that's why i think true. it's weird you know, that's why i, I think it's that. weird it's that's why I, I, I think it's funny to say so who's your favorite world's fair character I, yeah. yeah choose your architect <laughs> i did appreciate the uh the cameo from elias disney <laughs> yes that's a good that, one. That surprised me. I was like, oh, yeah, okay, that makes sense. Um, <laughs> and I did also, like, there was a comment at the end of, like, how maybe, uh, you know, Disneyland could have been kind of, like, inherited something of the World's Fair. And it that that stuck out to me because as they were talking about, like, okay, they're going to open and not everything is, like, finished. I was like, hey, happened to Disneyland, too. <laughs> so... That made it very relatable, obviously, because we're all here a little, at least a little, too interested in the Disney parks history. It's true. Oh, yeah, I I remember zeroing in when I first read it. Like, his son Walt would take note. I'm like, you bet your ass he did. Yeah, I think I was listening while I was, like, making toast or something, and I just, like, froze, and I was like, wait, what? What? (laughs) (laughs) There's that quote by the woman about when the lights come out at night. Uh, Walt Disney said something similar about, he's like, I love walking at Disneyland at night and the mm-hmm. lights come out. When I read that, I'm like, yep, Walt probably took inspiration from that. Yeah. What's that? What was the quote of that chapter? Night is the magician? I think so. Yeah. So. Like being at Disneyland at night is magical. And I can, I feel like the closest thing, that's the closest we're going to get to the World's Fair. Yeah. To at least that, like, that excitement of, uh. Of just being in this, like, atmosphere of, like, all these things happening around you and these attractions and the different things that you can see. And there's lots of food concessions. Food, and... yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. God, there was so much food in this. <laughs> I love when they just had the menus and they're just the most, like, French extravagant things. And they're like, <laughs> oh, and also during this course, there are cigarettes and cigars and wine. But you only have your cigarettes and cigars at this course. Uh, I mean, one of the main reasons we decided to read this, especially for this podcast, is for the true crime aspect, which is about H.H. Holmes. That's what we qualified it for. And uh, I I do want to bring this up because recently a series came out about Jeffrey Dahmer that's had a lot of controversy. Oh, Uh, yeah. When is true crime acceptable versus being exploitive? I think it's okay with H.H. H. Holmes and stuff like that because it's that was 130 years ago. Mm-hmm. And enough time has passed that the victims... The victims, their families, you know, have likely passed or their descendants are just, like, disconnected enough that, you know, it's maybe, you know, it's not so offensive. Whereas yeah. some of Dahmer's, the families of the victims, they're still around and they're pro- likely still grieving. I think for me, because like 
you know, I went through that serial killer phase in high school where I was like really interested and fascinated. It, it never got to the point where I was like, man, that's that, you know, Richard Ramirez is a hot guy that never got to that point. And like, there's some interesting psychology that I was like learning about the other day and like why people get to that point or possible reason. But like that aside, I think when it comes to like, where you're, like, glorifying the killer Mm -hmm. and making what they do seem, like, appealing. So you've gone too far. Yeah. When it is true crime. Because I don't apply that to, like, fictional villains. Because that's more... That's an exploration of just, like, the human character. But when you are... And you can glorify a villain in that sense. I think that's fine. But, like... We're talking about real people. Yeah, when it's real people who did real terrible things to actual people, then that's that's not okay. That's no bueno. Yeah. And, and what's important here, too, is even in this case, uh, Holmes is not being glorified. Nothing he's done no. is being shown in any kind of... What, what, I think what, what appeals about this is more like, how did this guy get away with this for so long, and how did he do it? Mm-hmm. How did he manage to make it work? And... What's so fascinating here, and I think what also fascinates people about, you know, in general about true crime, especially when it comes to serial killers, is sort of the commonality of, like, the character of, of some of them. You read about Holmes, and you get, and you, I mean, immediately think of other, and, and you know, you brought up Dahmer. Mm-hmm. And everybody, what does everybody say about them? Oh, they were charming and polite and whatever on the surface. Dahmer, and- not. I mean, I don't... Or Dahmer was a... Or soft-spoken or whatever. Like, Dahmer... I guess Dahmer was a weird case. But, like, I was, I'm thinking of other people who came off as really charismatic and... Oh, Ted Bundy. That's the prime yeah, example Ted Bundy. that Ted, everyone goes okay, to. Ted's a better example. But, mm-hmm. like, Holmes is so goddamn charming, apparently, that he's able to, like, scam people constantly. He's always avoiding creditors. He's, um... He's firing and, and hiring workers uh, at different intervals, so he does. No one sees how exactly the castle is built. Mm-hmm. He's 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 a snake oil salesman for mail order nonsense, and it's and he makes money hand over fist, and he just manages to fool everybody. And I think that's what's so fascinating about it for me is just how long he was able to get away with this by pure dint of him being like charismatic essentially see and then one of the things that happens in the novel i can't remember like a child was so happy to be around him or an animal i can't remember yeah but like there's always that theory where it's like oh dogs and children know when something uh when someone is bad no (laughs) this guy basically that's not true i i called it i honestly any if a dog's barking at you and is being it's not because you're an asshole could be a multitude of different things or if her child is crying around you it's not because they know oh there's something wrong with you no uh, uh, as we could see in this book a murderer can be as charming to babies and mm-hmm. pets as they can well i mean look how long he was able to pull the wool over the eyes of like even his own wife and, and children mm-hmm. the multiple wives yeah i think for me that was like the most fascinating was just kind of like this the way he was perceived by all the people who were like especially close to him you know in quotations because they didn't really know him obviously that was a lot of stuff that was inferred from like maybe letters that they've written like that scene where uh anna is you know locked up in the in that chamber and she's like oh it's an accident oh he he must have left the room and that's why he can't hear me just like i don't know that for me was the most fascinating of like 
how he strung them along and like how he made them believe things. So, and then there's Emmeline, who there's a point where before you she, she's gone missing, she's like, I I can't be around him. No, there's something wrong with him, and she got close enough that she saw the bad in him, and then there's only a few handful of times that we actually see the murders and they hit hard um well i think it's actually is it just the vault that we see actively see a murder happen i think there were two yeah he kills uh, oh my gosh uh what was her name with the uh with the chloroform right the christmas the christmas eve murder that he oh performs, that's right where he kills uh, she was really tall i'm suddenly blanking on her name uh, which is terrible because he murders her because he's under the pretext that he's going to give her an abortion. Yeah. And he also kills her daughter too. Mm-hmm. But we never see that. We only see him kill her with the chloroform. Like with Emily, it's like she she warns and says, oh no, there's something wrong with him. And then later on, Holmes just lies and says, oh, she's gotten married. And they're like, what? Yeah. When? What? Yeah. Here's a letter. It's And he forges it. Uh, the writing doesn't say directly he forged it or anything like that. The writing trusts us as readers to basically understand that oh, yeah. he murdered her. This mm-hmm. is how he covered his tracks. Oh, yeah. We know. We're savvy in that essence. And, and, and the author trusts trust us in that. And actually what's fascinating is, too, I think, I don't know if this was necessarily intentional, but I kept in the back of my head that he still has a wife in Chicago and that it's Murda and his two daughters. And guess what? They become an afterthought to us just as much as they're an afterthought to Holmes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he's, he was still married to her. And he- Yeah, during that whole span that he was murdering women and a couple of men in the murder castle. And he's still somehow convincing them, you know, somehow managing to maintain this sham of a marriage off to the side. And no one suspects him of anything like, even when he's, like, proposing to Minnie and bringing Anna along and, you know, setting up to get that estate in Texas. That's fascinating. I do appreciate that the focus is more on the victims and yes. their relationship with Holmes rather mm-hmm. than... I mean, I think there's a couple, only a couple chapters dedicated to him trying to set up the castle. But we never get, like, a full description of how he... Like, only... The vault, and then later on, when they start, ex- the police start exploring the castle that yeah. we see. We know, I mean, we understand, I think the one thing that's interesting, it focuses on specific points of the castle's construction. It's not all about, like, oh, the castle, the castle, the castle. It's about homes. Yes. And some of the, when he focuses on a certain thing, and, like, when he's constructing the kiln in the basement, for example. Like, I think of that moment, and how it's, you don't, it gets brought up occasionally, but the book's not all about his methods of how he he killed people it's more about the methods in which he did lure people and a lot of it is from the victim's perspective because larson is pulling from letters and notes and accounts from other people because we're never going to understand exactly how holmes mind works Mm -hmm. he had memoirs sure but and he was an amazing liar yeah exactly like he kept lying even when he was caught he still kept lying Mm -hmm. like he was so good at it. I mean, there's that one point, which is so baffling to me, when he's uh, realized there's 15 creditors and it's like, oh crap, my 
all these like l like different names and monikers I've used to basically con my way into getting <laughs> loans and all that have come to fruition. And he basically remains calm and is like, you know, I'm so sorry. And the 15 creditors are like, yeah, we believe you. I'm like, what? <laughs> he acts like, you know, he, he didn't, he, ge he generally didn't mean to do wrong and I, like if play the part and people will believe it. I, there, I mean, there was that whole thing where, like, oh, cops would stop by and he would just suddenly become the best of friends with them. And it's like, wow, such a shocker. A cop was, cops were um, totally looking the other way. Anyway, um, <laughs> yeah, it, it just goes to show, like, the book basically explains this man was a, a liar, but a damn good one. Mm -hmm. So it's hard to know... And that's probably like why he uh, Larson probably didn't take as much from his accounts as he did from the victims and their families' accounts and their letters. And I think that's so much more important because it it serves to give voice to to these people. Not glor again, it serves not it's not glorifying Holmes. It's painting the picture that this man was, you know, depraved and cunning, but cold, calculating, sure, but not someone to be glorified. I think this is also the first time in a true crime, unfortunately, in an, like a true crime story, where I actually can remember the names of the victims. Yes. Because they were given a personality. And not just a personality, because one of the things I struggle with after a certain point of listening to true, because I've listened to true crime podcasts, or um, back when I was young, my mom was obsessed with those, like, uh, how to catch a murder, killer kids, and all those stuff that was on TLC. Or, I can't remember what it was. TLC? I think it was TLC. Yeah, I can't remember anymore. Or Lifetime or whatever. And if they do focus on the victim, it's always like this white girl who everybody loved her. And she was endearing and charming. And, oh, what a sad soul to have a life lost. And I'm just like, oh, jeez. I can't take... Why does it... Why is it always this type of victim? This... Oh, she was the most charming person in the world. She just brought a smile to everyone's face. And it just, any, I can't remember any of their names. But, or even if it, the focus is on, there's the true crime probably asked where it's focused on the murder, and it's just the murder, and I, I don't remember the victim's names. The victims here, they're given personality. I know, like, Minnie Williams is, you can, I can visualize her very perfectly. Same with her sister Anna. Mm -hmm. And... Like, they are given enough personality that I can actually remember them. Mm-hmm. Or they're, well, okay. These are real people, and I gotta keep reminding myself that. These are real people. I think it's the fact he, Larson actually described their personality and described their, how, their appearance and... They're not just, as, as much as is fair, they're not just a name and a method of death. Yes. They are... They're they're a little more realized uh, through this this work where they you know Larson's doing a job of being like well here's here and here's who they were as people. The amount of research in this is is pretty staggering. Honestly, I'm I, I I like this one a lot. I think there's only other one nonfiction book that I've enjoyed about this much, and that one was about the life of Sir Henry Morgan. So <laughs> uh, we do have a couple questions, just a couple. We have one from Bringer. Thank you, Bringer. Uh, and he asked, what's our favorite World's Fair invention? And that's a toughie. Shredded wheat. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> I mean, if it is for you, but... It's not. 
does does this count? <laughs> I'm not sure if I'm really fond of that. It just it came out of laziness. <laughs> That's the thing. Because they're like, oh crap, uh, we need someone to play music for these belly dancers. And this guy's like, I don't know what to do. Um, here, let me play some notes. And then he regrets not getting the rights for that later. Soul Bloom was a nice little side character, I gotta admit, in this whole thing. What a good name, right? Soul Bloom. It's also like, there was like so many details that I'm also feeling like I'm blanking on like the other things that like, I feel like there were like multiple moments where like something was mentioned and I was like, hey, I, I should remember to mention that. And I, I'm like, what was it? I cannot remember. The automatic, wasn't there like the earliest form of the automatic dishwasher or the automatic oh! like, wa- washing machine? Yes. The dishwasher. Yep. Oh, I, you know, you know what? Uh, there's also Aunt Jemima's p- pancake mix. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, that's, that's, mm, that's a little cringe now, but yeah. Yeah. Yeah, actually. <laughs> Considering Aunt Jemima was not a real person. Nope. Um, ha- have you noticed there was a weird focus on the belly dancers? They kept coming up <laughs> way a bit. And like, there's a point where, where like, I think it, was it Olmstead? Who was like, I was going to do something where we were all going to dance with the belly dancers. I'm like, what? <laughs> he wouldn't burn it. Uh, that was funny. I, that was, there was definitely someone who was like, hey, I had this, yeah, I had this really good idea in order to help boost uh, interest in the fair. And we're going to have everybody do this big dance. And it's going to be all the f- the fair's architects are going to dance with belly dancers. And... <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> like, wow. Wow, guys. So we got to do something interesting because otherwise they're, they're, the people who care about finances are going to... Be like, hey, we need to bring these these cold-eyed people into the fair that are going to just be like, no, no fun, only money-saving. Like the, no it, spectacle. You can see the I like the reasoning from it from a mile away. Yeah, that's. I think that's why it kept getting brought up, because it's like... I remember Larson, the, the narrative bringing up that bit where Burnham is writing letters to his wife, Margaret, all the time. And there's that one where he's like, he's so eager to see her. He's like, when I... When I get back, I need you to be completely available oh, to do as God. I wish. And it talks about how, for the Victorian times, that letter was pro- practically steamed open. <laughs> and I'm like... <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> no wonder belly dancing was so shocking at the time. Because if that's what it takes, it's like, wow, okay. I, I guess I, it would be the Ferris wheel, because, I mean... I'm with you, actually. Because I, I, we did extol its virtues earlier, but yeah, I think one of the greatest inventions of that fair was the Ferris wheel. Mm-hmm. I feel like there was other stuff, but yeah, I'm just going to have to go with the Ferris wheel. Just because, like, that is definitely something that I always enjoy. Same. Well, the, the I will also admit, I think, going back to that thing with uh, Helen Keller, the, the thing that was shown off was the Braille printing press. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's a great invention. What, yeah. What a very useful, beautiful invention. Yes. Mm-hmm. Sure, they had the Braille typewriter, but the, the then that same inventor coming with the printing press is, is very important. And then uh, we received a comment from Dan, or Urkelbot666. Thank you, Dan. I liked the story as a whole and was pleased at how much I learned. I thought the characters were a little tough to pick up on since we are only really get to know most of them in terms of their jobs and how much Burnham got along with them. Olmstead was sort of fun to hear about. Cranky old bastard. <laughs> Again, we all love Olmstead. He's the comic relief character. And then the Prendergast stuff was interesting. We all- didn't talk about Prendergast. No, we missed him, yeah. 
That's like the third, like, that's like the weird third wheel of this whole thing. It's like fair homes, fair homes. And here's a little thing about Prendergast. It was like, it was him and like the mayor and his like yes. love for yeah. watermelon. That's, that's the one detail that stuck out to me was he loved, had to have watermelon with every meal. And he loved, he loved to wear his black slouch hat. Right. Mayor Harrison. And Prendergast thinking like, but I run this. This is all me. Because I wrote so many letters. I've clearly earned this. There's, he must know who I am. And then ends up being a killer by killing them. And actually how yeah, the mayor dies. Yeah, that sucked for the but, mayor. But like, it was interesting to have, to have Pendergast in there as like, like obviously he becomes a killer, but just like what kind of leads him his like delusions and like the way he ends up in comparison to like Holmes, who is like I don't know. It was interesting having those two different types of killers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's definitely a difference between the two. They were both obviously set up as like because we we got that those hints early on, like oh he's gonna do something bad at the end. Yeah. So he's like almost like another villain in the story, but like it's showing kind of this slow. Uh, build up to an inevitability and uh, like it, it sets the tension actually decently if you don't know the history like the fact that he keeps writing these kind of weird vaguely unhinged postcards to random people and then they keep those cards and it's important to remember that the reason those cards were kept and are important now is because of inevitably what Prendergast would do and you were but you were gonna make a comment about the the mayor uh, well, one of the things that I thought was interesting, too, is, like, as the mayor's dying, there's, I forget who it was, he's like, oh, you got shot above the heart, you're fine. No, I'm dying, damn it, and he dies. He's like, <laughs> in the comments, like, he died be- <laughs> angry at me because I didn't believe him. <laughs> I, I, I don't... Carter I, Harrison's ghost is hovering over you. I feel so bad because this is, this is a murder, but it's just... It's written in such a funny way. You know, despite everything, though, I know who my least favorite character is. Grover Cleveland. Fuck that guy. (laughs) (laughs) And then he said, I wasn't as engaged with the home story as I thought I'd be, but it was interesting enough. I've heard that from a couple people who have read this. Like, they said, oh, I got more interested in the World's Fair than I did the home story. Well, it definitely felt like there was, you know, just like we said, a good chunk of the book at one point focuses only on the World's Fair it definitely felt like there was a lot more going on there. And, like, yeah, there were parts where, like, they're talking about, like, the, the woman's building. And I, like, I was invested in that. I was like, did it end up with all these terrible decorations on it? Like, I needed to know. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> the sort of patchwork quilt thing. Like, yeah. Yeah, oh, no, man. like, and then when they were talking about the, the Ferris wheel, like, starting up again and everyone's, like, crowding on it. And then, like, the lead up to, like, oh, is it going to resist win? Like, there were a lot of things about the World's Fair that I was, like, way more invested in than I thought I would be. Mm-hmm. I don't know, maybe because we, we, in our, like, present day, just, like, hear about serial killers all the time and there is so much serial killer content. So, like, okay, yeah, Holmes and his murder castle. Obviously, we know what's going on there. But tell me more about this World's Fair. Because this is cool. Well, and to be fair, the three of us are keenly interested in, like, theme parks in general. And what is the World's Fair, if not a huge spectacle theme park? Right. Exactly. I mean, look at, if you want to talk about World's Fairs in the 1964, or was it 63? It was 64, I think. 1964 World's Fair, where Disney was actually involved and had Mm -hmm. things like, you know, it's a small world premiere. And, Mm -hmm. uh, 
you know, the magic skyway that gave us the dinosaurs in the in the one uh, carousel progress. Carousel progress. Like you think about it, these world fairs were these houses of spectacle and, and wonder, and getting to see, you know, how that kind of that's that same build up as people who are keenly interested in that sort of thing on the other end. It doesn't surprise me that much that we are as people who are interested in that, that we're also interested in the fair, almost a little more so than, than Holmes. Um, actually, the question that Dan asked, or he asked two questions. What attractions would each of you want to experience most at the World's Fair? God, I would love to go through all the different buildings. Like uh, like the the liberal arts one, the women's building. Uh, Literally I, everything. I want to experience about. everything at the World's Fair. Are you serious? Yeah. For um, me, it's food. Let me try all the food. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's always food yeah. for me. I want to ride one of those uh, little electric boats around in the like the lagoons and stuff, and and go to the wooded island. That sounded like fun. Mm-hmm. I, I'm I'm firmly in Olmsted's camp about like actually working the landscape so it looks good. That's why I think another reason I liked him as a character and the idea of having like. Well, you have to have electric boats, Burnham. Don't you dare bring steam launches in here. And then he brings finally caves and brings steam launches in. And it's like, God damn it. <laughs> and also probably sneak away for the Buffalo Bill Wild Show. Yeah, yeah honestly. That I'll, for sure. I think it's interesting because it is, you know, it is complicated. But, like, uh-huh. at least Buffalo Bill was actually employing, like, bringing in people who were Native American for the show. Yeah. It's tricky because, like, at the time, they're like, oh, and we're going to stage war band attacks on, like, a settler's cabin, and here I come as the white hero with all my soldiers to fight you yeah, off, even that's... if it's play acting. I'd still see the show, but I'm going to be tugging my collar the whole goddamn time. Yeah. But, no, wait, but I will tell you, here's one thing. How cool would it be to see Annie Oakley? That's the reason why I would go. I want to see Annie Oakley as the sharpshooter and see how impressive she was with a gun. So. I, I want to be there for that moment when, when Buffalo Bill Cody met Susan B. Anthony. That's what I want to yeah, see. Yeah, that'd be cool too. His second question is, do you think there's anything that could have shut down the fair? Follow-up question. Do you think there's anything that would have made Buffalo Bill shut down his show? Uh, I'm going to say no on Buffalo Bill. Well, unless they came by and were like, get off our property. Well, he was he was on his own property. Oh, that's right. They wouldn't let him go to the fair, so he literally bought property across the street. He's like, this is my concession. Can't tell me to do shit. He was like the side attraction for the World's Fair. Yes. He's one of those little venues outside of San Diego Comic-Con. That, <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. I mean, like, hard to say. Because, like, there was, like, say, like, the, the fire... That happened. Which building was it? The cold storage building. Ironically, Jeez. someone didn't build a chimney correctly, and it turned into a backdraft right, right, scenario. Right, and then like how I think they mentioned like how sales, like ticket sales, had like gone up immensely the following day, and I was like, you would think that they would at least close for the day to like make sure everyone was safe or whatnot. Um, You'd think that things were not crazier, but just like you know. Less safety precautions um, yeah. than than now. When the that what was it like a storm or that wind storm hit and everybody's like freaking out and they're like, oh god, are we gonna get through? Are we gonna live? Uh, what I admired about that part was you got to see how well built the um, Ferris wheel was, mm-hmm. and even that hot air balloon getting torn to shreds didn't factor into it that much. Okay, that's the attraction I would want to go on, is the hot air balloon. Ooh. How cool would that be? Yeah. 
that midway did sound pretty rad if not a little bit um not a little bit racist just being like, <laughs> <laughs> there there's a lot of moments again a lot of collar tugging moments that i was like oh <laughs> like that no like that like that bit where where olmstead is talking about what to bring into the fair and he wants to liven it up and he's like hey maybe we could have some uh i won't use his exact words we could have some people of different ethnicities in their specific costumes and he uses a certain term to refer to them going out there and just being like moments of improvisation and Burnham's like no <laughs> not for, probably not for the reasons we would hope he's just like no olmstead that what no. Yeah. That's all the questions we have. Do we have any last minute thoughts? I've actually never been to Chicago, but uh, I wonder how much of that the grounds are still left, if anything. Can you, if you still get, like, I know the murder castle's long gone. Yeah. There's a post office there where it used to be. Um, but I wonder how interesting it would be to try and retrace some of the areas. Like, if you went to the area that was Jackson Park. So, the, you know that statue? Big Mary? She's there. She's still there. Oh, wow. I'd love to see it. Yeah. I've been to a Chicago airport because one of my flights actually stopped in Chicago and I had to wait in the airport, And but I never left the airport, so I don't really consider that being in Chicago. So I would love to visit Chicago at some point. There is a uh, museum they have there that, like, specializes in like medieval armor that i have been really wanting to go see so one day grab creative horror we're all going taking a trip to chicago sweet home (laughs) chicago this also does feel like a kind of a love letter to chicago as well Uh, yeah for sure It, it definitely doesn't it definitely doesn't like flatter the city in any capacity it talks about how you know gross and grimy and smoke filled and polluted and you know, just gross and nasty that area was. A big city is in the, you know, late 1800s. Mm-hmm. But that's just a, those are just facts. It's not like anyone's trying to take a big dump on the city's reputation, especially not Eric Larson. He's just saying, this is just the way, this is the way it was. Mm-hmm. Hey, there's a dead horse in the street. Eh, who cares? So it does feel like a love letter to Chicago. And like, again, it's, it's a, it's, the, all these people getting together out of a sense of civic pride, trying to promote their city. And I mean, there's something to be said about that. It was interesting to read or listen to this while also being kind of aware of, like, there is an actual serial killer go- like out there right now in um, Stockton, California. Uh, so it was kind of interesting being in this, like, look back into history and then kind of also comparing it to present day i mean if you if you haven't heard about it uh and want to know more about it there um i think recently i read an article there was an article uh, like four days ago from npr um that kind of summarized it a little bit but it's some dude is targeting um hispanic men and shooting them oh shit nowhere near as like on the level of Holmes in that this man is a fucking coward and is just approaching people on the street at night and shooting at them. Um, but it is, you know, up to like seven victims now. So yes, this is a serial killer. So, uh, you know, inform yourselves, be cautious. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't know. It's just, it's just this weird 
of like this is a reality and this was felt like I was hearing fiction but no this was reality and we are still in that reality I don't damn I mean I think people forget Dahmer was that happened back in the 90s that's not long ago again that's why it feels so weird that they're doing this this series about it now but I think that which does feel like sensationalizing it so well I mean like I, the 90s is, like, apparently far enough back now that, you know, you can have Halloween costumes of it. It's apparently that's dis- that disconnected from it already. Oh, Lord. Well, on that sobering note... <laughs> <laughs> hey, what are we reading next, uh, next month? Yeah, can we... Let's go back to the world of fiction, please. I need my escape. I'm down for that. <laughs> let's let... Yeah. I, look, we were reading about stuff 130 years ago. That's fine. That's far removed enough that I'm okay with it. Yeah, mm-hmm. but I think it. I think sometimes you when you realize like this is real. This is a real thing that happened. These are real people. There were real victims. Yeah. I think that's the scary part of it is when you think when you realize no, this is something that actually happened. That's the scary part. But yeah, we're gonna go back to the world of fiction. Um, we're going to go back into horror horror now, and we're going to read something shorter to, because it is Halloween month. This is our busiest month, and uh, we want to we read something uh, that would just not take as much time, but still pack a punch. We found a novella that actually takes place at sea, which we've never done before. I don't uh, think so. We will be reading Sakalina by Philip Fracassi. Sage showed us a TikTok where um, it was stated that these could be actually read in a in an evening. So, and also I checked online; it's only two dollars for the Kindle, uh, five dollars to for the paperback. So, good way to support a, a smaller author. Yes. Also, check your local libraries or Libby, because I was on my Libby for my local library. Uh, if you like what you hear, check out our other podcasts on the Creative Horror Network at creativehorror.com or check out our YouTube page. You just look up uh, Creative Horror and we are the purple eye icon. So keep an eye out because uh, we have a Midnight Marinara coming out on October 30th. That's right. If all goes well, as of this recording, the script is being worked on. We're going to give it a couple passes. We're already doing some casting for it. It, I think it's going to be a good one. It might be a little tricky to put together because of uh, the situation where we've moved. I'll just be completely honest, but I, I will get it done. It will get done. And I, I want to make sure that Midnight Marinara is brought back from the dead on time to celebrate our nine-year anniversary wow yeah it's kind of amazing we'll see what happens at the 10-year but for now i've been dropping a couple hints about this but i've said this already we collectively creative horror uh came up with a story for this one together a creative horror original yes and i'm very excited to be the one to kind of take that and put it into a like a script format but we were all involved in the in the story creation process until then happy halloween and it seems like the even though it seems like it's getting dark out and uh even if we blow out our candles i can see the lights of the world fair shining our way and it looks beautiful fantastic we really gotta do something about all these flower beds they ruin the vista they're cheap and tacky and childish (laughs) it's gotta be all greenery all greenery damn it (laughs) 
Good evening, intrepid listeners. This is the Pasta Shade, the host of Midnight Marinera, and this podcast is part of CreativeHorror.com, a network of podcasts and creators working together to build a constructive community of horror fans. For more content like this, visit us at CreativeHorror.com. Ha, 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 ha.